Thank you for listening to the Redemption Church podcast. For more information about Redemption Church, please visit redemptionokc.com. You can stay up to date on sermons by subscribing to our podcast on iTunes. Thanks again for listening. Well, if you've got your Bibles, would you turn with me to 1 Samuel chapter 18 as we continue our study of the life of David? And we're going to walk through this uh, chapter today. And as we do, let me just ask you a couple questions to kind of start us off. What do you do when someone hurls a spear at you? Uh, duck's a good answer. I mean, it's kind of an odd question for us today, but we're going to see what happens with David because that is, is what's going to happen to David in this passage. And I can give you kind of the tried answer, which is, you know, you either freeze, fight, or flight, Right. So you're either going to freeze up, you're going you're to begin to fight, you're going to start throwing spears back, or you're going to run away. Uh, those, that's the normal, natural response in our flesh to what happens when someone attacks us. Let me ask you another question. What do you do when you do everything right and life still doesn't go the way it should? Um, it's a hard place, isn't it? How do you respond when you've done all the right things and life still seems to go sideways at an increasing pace at times. Well, at the root of these questions is a more general question. And here's what I want you to understand today, that I can actually tell you, if if, if you give me the answer to how you answer this third question, I can actually tell you how you answer the first two questions. The, The answer to the third question will actually inform how you answer those first two scenarios and those first two questions. And here's the question, the third one. How big is your God? How big is your God. See, anyone can trust God when everything makes sense. What's it look like to trust God when things don't seem to make sense, when things seem to go a different direction? I love Eugene Peterson uh, said this. He says, God cannot fit into our plans. We must fit into his. Um, Any of you argue with the Lord about that sometimes? Like, Lord, this is not what we had agreed on. And he's like, who? And, you know, I, I have that conversation with the Lord a lot, and I've yet to win that conversation. He's like, no, I think this goes the other way around. See, there's a fact of life that I've got this little water bottle up here and I could take this and I could go to the ocean and I could dump it in the ocean, but I can't take the ocean and put it in this bottle. But that only works one way. It's the same with the Lord. See, I've got to fit into his plans. I can't make him fit into my my little bottle, my little box, my little way that the world's gonna work. And so I have to learn to trust him. See, God's too big to fit into our plans, and that's why we have to learn to fit into his. And David, what we're going to see in this passage is the same thing works, with, uh, work, works itself out in David's life as we watch his life unfold. See, the question here is, what, will you trust the Lord when everything's crumbled and all you have to lean on is him alone and nothing else? When everything else has seemed to be pulled away and all that's left is the Lord, can you trust him even in those moments? See, in this passage, we're going to see how David's life unfolds. And um, really, there's, it's one thing to trust the Lord when everyone's cheering for you and everything's going your way. It's an entirely different thing to trust the Lord when you start to get sifted and you find out that all those other things are just being whittled away from you. And so you're left kind of grasping for something to hold on to. It's interesting that we see this pattern throughout the whole Bible. This isn't just something that happens in David's life, but we see this over and over through the scriptures. Think about the nation of Israel. 
Uh, God rescues them out of Egypt. And when he, when he does, they don't do a single thing. They don't fight a single battle. They, God just kind of escorts them. The Egyptians go, okay, leave. Because through God's miraculous intervention, the, the Egyptians let them leave. In fact, the Egyptians come and give them all their loot. And so they, it's like they've plundered a foreign enemy without fighting a single battle. And the Egyptians come and say, here, just take all our stuff and just get out of Dodge. We don't want you anymore. And they walk out. But then what happens? Immediately they get out into a place where they have to trust the Lord to provide for their every meal. And where they get to the borders of a promised land and they see giants in the land and God says, okay, now go conquer them. And what do they do? They shrink back in fear. Whenever it became difficult, they began to pull back. Think of another one. When they get to the promised land, uh, after 40 years of wandering, what happens? They go to the, the battle of Jericho. What, how hard was the battle of Jericho for the people of Israel? I mean, literally, they just sung and danced a little bit, walked around the city, and everything fell down, and they won. Like, that's pretty easy, right? Well, what happens right after that? God says, okay, now take up your spears and your swords, and you go out and conquer the rest of the nation. Go get them. And what happens? They never get it done because it becomes difficult. They have to actually act and trust the Lord in the midst of the difficulty. Think about some more personal people in the Bible. Think about Abraham. Abraham's promised descendants that will outnumber the stars. And so he's given this, this promise that I'm gonna be a blessing to all the nations and through your offspring, if you look at the stars and think about how many of them there are, your offspring will be more than that and you're gonna be a blessing to the entire world. And then what happens? He goes and sits down, he's gonna, like he's gonna wait a while, right? He waits and he waits and he waits till he's well past childbearing years. And he thinks it's never gonna happen. And then he has a child and then he finally, God has answered that prayer. And then what does the Lord do? Why don't you take that son you waited for so long and go put him on an altar? See if you trust me. Think about another one. Think of Joseph. Joseph is uh, this younger brother and he's got these older guys and God gives him a dream. And in this dream, he is told that he's going to rule over his brothers. They're gonna bow down before him. And like a really dumb younger brother does, he tells his brothers about the dream and immediately they're not very happy about that. And so what do they do? They sell him into slavery. They threaten to kill him. They leave him for dead, sell him off for slavery. He ends up not ruling over them, but actually going through really difficult times. And what happens? He works his way out. He gets some breaks. He kind of moves his way back up. He gets back up to the top. And just as he gets to the top, what happens? This false accusation goes back to the prison. He's down in the dungeons. He's back in the dark. And he's waiting and he's waiting and he's waiting and years go by. And eventually God fulfills his promises, but it wasn't easy, was it? The same thing happens with David. When you think about David, what's interesting is everything seemed to go pretty well for David at this point, but David's about to enter God's training program. And what we see as we move through the rest of 1 Samuel is that in chapter eight things, things, 18, things begin to turn. And, and you know what's gonna happen? David's gonna get sifted. And all the things that David counts on in life just start getting pulled away from him. And you know what happens in chapter 18 and 19 and 20 and 21 and 22 and all the way to the end of the book? This is what happens in David's life. As he goes through this season of trial and it's this really difficult time for him and it's interesting because he didn't do anything wrong and yet he's suffering. And can life work like that sometimes? Of course it can. Life sometimes works that way. And, and we love walking with God as long as things work the way we want them to, right? But as soon as things begin to shift, uh, it, it gets a little harder. Like I will always obey the Lord as long as I know there's a year-end bonus of everything I want coming at the end of that. 
right? But what happens whenever things seem to go the other direction and all of a sudden God's promises feel like a sham or maybe when I can't make sense of what God's doing or everything that I count on begins to get pulled away, then all of a sudden I have nothing but the Lord. It's more difficult for me to grab hold of him and just say, I trust you in the middle of this when things seem to go the different direction. So let's look at the life of David and see what we can learn. So far, uh, David's life has, has gone pretty well, at least what we know of it, right? How big is David's God? David's God is big enough that when uh, Samuel goes to look for someone that, uh, a man after God's own heart, that he's gonna anoint as the future king of Israel, David's family leaves him out, but God says, no, go get that kid out of the sheep pen, bring him in, and I'm gonna anoint that one as the king. God saw him when no one else did, and he anointed him as the future king of Israel. So God was big enough to do that. God was big enough in the next chapter, in chapter 16, that when uh, Saul was going through uh, kind of his mental illness and this evil spirit had come upon him, and he's going through this thing, and they're looking for someone to come and play music to help calm his soul. Uh, there's someone that just happens to be there in the king's court that says, hey, I know about this guy named David. And why don't we go get him and bring him in? And David gets brought in the king's court where he learns and watches what it's like to be king in the midst of that. And God's using that to change him. Then uh, David, uh, out of all of his brothers, three of his brothers are off at war fighting the Philistines. And there's this crazy giant Goliath that's out there. And uh, there's five of his brothers home. David is the one of those five brothers that's sent to take food to his older brothers at the battlefront. And in that, he happens to face Goliath. And in that moment, God is big enough that David could hurl a rock and it's gonna find the one opening in, in Goliath's army and he's gonna drop that guy. And so all of this has happened. In the midst of that, uh, the king had promised that whoever killed Goliath would be uh, one, wealthy. Two, he'd be brought in the royal family and allowed to marry the daughter of the king. And three, pretty good deal here, no taxes for life. Any of you sign up for that deal if you could? Yeah, all you gotta do is kill, kill a giant. Uh, so let's, uh, at this point, life looks pretty good for David. So let's look at uh, kind of this chapter 18. We're gonna read <clears throat> starting verse one. It says, as soon as, uh, as soon as he had finished speaking to Saul, the soul of Jonathan was knit to the soul of David. And Jonathan loved him as his own soul. And Saul took him that day and would not let him return to his father's house. Then Jonathan made a covenant with David because he loved him as his own soul. And Jonathan stripped himself of the robe that was on him and gave it to David in his armor and even his sword and his bow and his belt. And David went out and was successful wherever Saul sent him. So that Saul sent, set him over the men of war. And this was good in the sight of all the people and also in the sight of Saul's servants. And things have gone pretty well so far, right? This, uh, this teenage boy who's barely old enough to shave has been put over the men of war and they all thought it was a good idea. That tells you God's on his side, right? Like you don't take experienced warriors, put a teenager who's never done anything over them and they all go, all right. Like that's just not the way that usually works. But here, David is, uh, is being exalted. We're seeing this thing of him being elevated. What's going on here with uh, the, this son of Saul named Jonathan? And it's pretty fascinating when you begin to see what happens. Just, Jonathan and David are really kindred spirits. They're, they really just hit it off quickly. Uh, they're very similar in a lot of ways. They both, uh, they both just kind of were warriors. They were leaders. They were kind of visionary action, uh, men of action. They were, they were men that were great lovers of the Lord and full of faith. And so they were willing to do these things. And they just had a really deep friendship that developed, it says, almost instantaneously. And so there's this kind of common bond. We may remember from uh, some of the past passages we looked at, 
Jonathan was also a man who had stepped out and led the troops. He'd also stepped out and taken charge. He'd done things in Saul's absence to uh, basically go fight the battles of Israel and people had followed him and he'd been successful. And so there'd been this kind of common connection that's here. But you see what, what you see here is very symbolic. It's kind of an odd passage for us when you think of two dudes and it goes, well, he took his robe off and gave it to another dude. Like that just seems like an odd thing to, to read. Let me tell you what's going on there. There's actually a, some symbolism that's, that's happening there that was very countercultural. Let me ask you this. If you were a son of a king, what's the first thing you're gonna do to any rival of the throne in that day and age? You're gonna eliminate you're gonna go and eliminate anyone that has a, an opportunity to be a rival to you succeeding your father as on the throne of, of the nation. What Jonathan does is he actually sets aside his own line of self in the line of succession and inserts David there. He takes his royal robe and he says, you know what, this is now yours. He takes his armor and he says, the armor of the son of the king is now yours. He gives him his sword, his bow, his belt, and just says, everything that was naturally seemed to be coming to me, I'm now transferring the rights to that to you. And so he begins to, uh, to just bless David. And in fact, so much so that they uh, do what's called cutting a covenant. When they cut a covenant, it's this kind of commitment and this relationship that they said is, man, I'll have your back forever, right? Uh, this is kind of like, this is just one of those situations where what they actually do is they cut an animal in half they said, look, if I'm not faithful to you, may I be cutting as many pieces as that animal, were, uh, that animal was cut. And then they walk between the pieces of the animal as a way to seal the covenant. Um, and, and so these are kind of brothers for life is what they're trying to symbolize thing. But do you understand how countercultural that would be for Jonathan to do that? For a future king to set it aside and to do that, why would he do something so noble? Well, I think it's an act of faith. I think Jonathan knew that this was the one that the prophet of God, Samuel, had anointed to be the future king. I think he saw that this is the one that God has chosen. And ultimately, this kingdom that my father rules is God's kingdom, not our kingdom. And so if God wants to put someone else on the throne, that's, a, that's God's prerogative. And so he's surrendering to that. Uh, one person said, this deed on his part is an act of faith. Only faith makes us willing to be less. Faith causes us to surrender the rights we pretend to have. Have you ever had to give up rights? for the sake of the Lord. That's what he says uh, that he's doing. It's interesting. Contrast that to Saul's, Saul's response to David killing Goliath. So you think uh, Saul would, uh, David would gone out and kill Goliath and he'd come in and Saul, the king who was a coward and, uh, and fearful about going out, would be relieved and be celebratory, right? But you don't see any high fives. You don't see any like big like, man hugs, like way to go, dude. You don't see any prayers of thanksgiving. You don't see this kind of warm greeting. What Saul says is, Who's that kid's daddy? What's the family line that he's in? Because he's promised his daughter his hand in marriage. And he wants to know, is this guy up to snuff? Does this guy measure up? And so he starts playing politics from the very get-go. And that's Saul's response, which is very different from his son Dave, uh, Jonathan's response. Jonathan was motivated by goals of faith in God's kingdom. Saul was motivated by jealousy, by his own insecurity. And, you know, it's fascinating how much jealousy can drive out joy and love but how much faith can give it. And so Jonathan's heart was knit and he joyfully celebrated with David and David's victory. And they were really ultimately united by their faith. One guy said this, uh, Richard Phillips said, it's only those people who like Jonathan have given themselves away to something greater than themselves who possess such freedom to love. Man, isn't that good? 
that it's only in giving your life away to someone bigger than you are that you're freed up to just love and not to, not to cling to your own position. But Saul wasn't able to do that. Now, I was reading a book this week and it was talking about our, just how we process our emotions and our emotional agility and ability to navigate those things. And it was interesting because uh, the author made this comment and said, human beings are meaning-making creatures. Meaning we, we just have this natural drive to make meaning out of life. To, to make sense of all the things that are going on. And so we do this by constructing a narrative about our lives. We, we make up a story to fit in all the isolated experiences. If you think about your life as a timeline and all the things that are happening as you move through that timeline, we need to kind of craft a story that makes sense of how all those things fit together. And so we make up these stories. The problem with the story we tell ourselves is that the story isn't always true. That, that oftentimes we're, un, we're unreliable narrators of the stories that we write about our own lives. We've got these internal chatterboxes that talk and chirp to us and the things that they say about us aren't always good and they're not always accurate. And because of that, it steers our lives in different directions. The author went on to say that, that we oftentimes are unreliable narrators of the events of our lives. And isn't that true? Do you ever have something that happens and you begin to tell a story? Do you ever walk in the house and one of your kids or your spouse does something and you instantly take it personally? It has nothing to do with you, but you've got a narrative that you've written for your story. And so you insert that into it. And all of a sudden, and you're bowing up because you're just like, how dare you challenge me? And they're like, I wasn't even talking to you, right? It's because of what I brought to the table and the story that I'm writing that somehow leads me astray in that moment. And that's what really is what we see with Jonathan and Saul. For Jonathan, his faith guides his understanding. So he can trust God in elevating David. When, when God chooses to elevate David, Jonathan goes, well, the Lord's up to something here and he's able to trust the Lord. But Saul is allowing his insecurity and jealousy to become his guide, and that misleads him over and over. Let me ask you this, has David at this point done a single thing that would cause Saul to doubt David's loyalty to him and his faithfulness? Not at all. And yet Saul is filled with with anger and hate and fear and jealousy and all kinds of things that come out of Saul because of the internal narrative tells him to be afraid. You know, when your emotions are... the thing that drives you. You ever play the game of life and you've got the little wheel and you just flick it and it spins around and like you see what you get? That's what happens when we put our emotions in charge and our own narrative. You just kind of like, thunk, let's see what shows up today. And whatever shows up is what I'm gonna do, right? See, the difference is that faith is more like a compass that always points tree north. And so instead of just being willy-nilly based on whatever's coming out of us, we actually have an anchor outside of us that sets our course and tells us what it is we can trust. That's why you see uh, Jonathan acting in a different way than Saul. So as you think about this, man, one of the things I love about my Bible is, is not that it just helps me make success out of my life, but it helps me make sense out of life. The Bible provides me a narrative that makes sense of all the things that are happening in my life and not always immediately, not always right away, but as I look back, it helps me to make sense and stay focused on true north. And what we're gonna see here is Saul just from this point on begins this kind of descent into madness and David begins this kind of ascent into greatness. And we're gonna see this thing that happens. Here's what's fascinating to me in in verse five that we just looked at. It says that that Saul sent David out. Wherever Wherever Saul sent David, David found success. David was submissive to a crazy king. And do you ever find it hard to trust the Lord and submit to a plan of someone that clearly doesn't know what they're doing? I mean, you have to trust something outside. You have to trust the Lord. You have to trust something outside of yourself 
to do that because if you're just trusting the man, you're gonna be in trouble. And yet God gives him success everywhere he goes. David's barely shaving. He's never been in any position of leadership before. And now he's leading the men of war of the nation of, the, of God's people. Uh, his leadership ability is on display, but more than that, it's really uh, the, the Lord's favor in his life is on display and God's at work. So let's look at the next uh, section here. Let's start to go down to verse six. It says, and as they were coming home, <clears throat> when David returned from striking down the Philistine, the women came out of all the cities of Israel, singing and dancing to meet King Saul with tambourines, with songs of joy, with musical instruments. And guys, like you've wanted that day forever, right? Like some of you have like, if I could ever have that day where just all the ladies came out singing about me, that'd be a good day, right? I mean, just be honest. You don't have to, you have to pretend like you don't think that. Uh, th this was probably a good day for them. I'm just saying and so the women sang to one another, and as they celebrated, they said, Saul has struck down his thousands, and David his ten thousands. And Saul was very angry, saying, and this saying displeased him. He said, they have ascribed to David ten thousands, but they've only ascribed to me thousands. What? Yeah, oh, isn't that just sad? Um, and, man, that's like a, the ultimate mother comment, right? Like your kid comes in whining about something, and you're like, oh, you know? Yeah, it's so rough. Um, and what more could he have but my kingdom? Uh, what's all, what narrative is Saul telling? You know, oh, they sang this song. He's already out to get me. Um, and Saul eyed David from that day on. He eyed him. He kept him on his eye. Kept looking, making. He's looking for a slip up. He's looking for a reason to, to hate him. He's looking for something to get in. Verse 10. The next day, a harmful spirit from God rushed upon Saul and he raved within his house while David was playing the lyre. And he did this day by day. Saul had a spear in his hand. Oh, there's a strange thing, right? A depressed dude walking around his house with a spear. Like that's, that's not normal. And Saul hurled the spear for he thought, I will pin David to the wall. But David evaded him twice. Saul was afraid of David because the Lord was with him, but had, but had departed from Saul. So Saul removed him from his presence and made him a commander of a thousand. And he went out and he came in before the people and David had success in all his undertakings for the Lord was with him. And when Saul saw that he had great success, he stood in fearful awe of him. But all Israel and Judah loved, loved David for he went out and came in before them. Uh, love this section of scripture and really what you begin to see in their, their life. But you have this kind of welcome home party, right? Like I think of World War II in New York City and the confetti falling and all the people cheering as the soldiers came home. It's that kind of a moment. And they're just singing a song. They're not meant to slight Saul in any way. They're just celebrating everything that's happened. But David had been the one that had just killed Goliath. And so he kind of got prominence in this thing. But Saul is going to be bitter. And it's interesting is it seems like everyone loves David and respects David, doesn't it? It's like all David, I mean, all Judah and, and Israel loved him. And we're gonna see that uh, Saul's daughter, Michal, loved him and Jonathan loved him and all the people loved him and the, the men of war loved him. And when he comes in, goes out to battle and comes back in, all the people respect him. And so there's then the, scene, the sense that he's put into this instant fame because of his bravery and his triumph over, over Goliath. <clears throat> but it's interesting because Saul is really revealed to be a sham. Saul has, he has power, and he's got position, but he doesn't have character. And so you see this kind of jealousy that just drives him. The problem with jealousy is jealousy is like a black hole. It just sucks up everything in sight. And it's constantly needing to be fed. It's a vacuum that you just have to feed and it's never full. It's interesting because Saul's, Saul's, his heart's full of pride and self. And 
It's interesting that the most prideful people are oftentimes the most insecure. The ones who are constantly attacking you are often the ones who are actually afraid of you. And so what you see is this kind of weird juxtaposition in the life of Saul of this aggression that's taking place because of some void in his, in his life that he's trying to fill. And, um, and it's interesting that, that that sinfulness just corrupts his ability to just enjoy, enjoy life and to love those around him. And so he can't be connected to this David, this hero who's literally doing everything he wants. He says, go out. And David's like, all right, I'm going. He says, okay, go fight these guys. And David's like, all right, I'll go do this. He's like, play some music. And David's like, okay, I'll play music. David's literally doing everything he wants. And he's jealous and he's hateful towards him because he's fearful of what's going on. And that's coming from inside. And so Saul is going to work for David's demise and his destruction. It's interesting, in verse 12, it says that Saul was afraid of David because the Lord was with David but had departed from Saul. Remember, there's this uh, thing that happened, and we talked about it several weeks ago, where for the king in that time, the, the Lord's spirit would descend upon them to kind of set them apart for the, the responsibility of being king and what they were called to do. And originally, the spirit had been with Saul. The spirit had left Saul and gone over and, come, and had been placed upon David. And Saul, he's recognizing that. So there's some kind of spiritual recognition in Saul's life going, and God is with this guy now, and he used to be with me like that, but he's no longer there. What should Saul have done in that instant? Well, he should have repented. What he should have done is just said, Lord, I'm sorry, would you be with me? But instead, he just develops a harder heart. He digs his heels in, and he continues to fight. In fact, verse 15 says, when he looks at David, he says he has fearful awe of him. He says that he dreaded his face, is what it literally means. That when David walked in the room, he dreaded looking him in the eye. Verse 29, at the end of the chapter, it says, but Saul was, becomes even more afraid of David. So David was, Saul, I mean, so Saul was David's enemy, enemy continually. So at that point, Saul's just given in and said, I'm just gonna be his enemy. When you get to 19, Saul's gonna have a board meeting. He's gonna bring everyone in and he says, eliminate this guy. And so what's kind of been this, this kind of uh, underhanded, manipulative way of trying to take David out is gonna become full-on aggression when we get to chapter 19. Now, verse 10, let's go back and look at the spear, right? Like, it's a pretty odd comment when you think about this guy that's a little mentally out there uh, walking around his house carrying a spear. Um, and it might seem kind of odd. Like, if you saw that guy, you'd think, well, we should just leave. Like, we should all, we should all walk out the door and go somewhere else, right? Um, but you can also imagine that people would talk about a king and a guy in authority like, well, he's just, you know, he's a little over the top, but that's just kind of who he is. You know, you can kind of hear the servants talking that as Saul would come in and maybe David would come to go visit and they'd walk in to Saul and go, hey, just tread lightly. Saul's having one of his days. You know, like Saul's having one of the moments. He's having one of those things and they would kind of justify it. He's, he's kind of acting out today. So just, you know, kind of take it easy. But, you know, it's just Saul's recurring issues and he's a little crazy, but he's not really out to get David. It's just, he's just a little off the rocker and we need to kind of soothe him and, you know, make sure he has a little counseling and see if that takes care of him. Um, it seems odd, but we do the same kind of thing all the time, don't we? I mean, not spears, hopefully. But we tiptoe around people that are hurling insults at us, words at us, angry looks at us. And we tiptoe around and we just justify it and we set it aside and we don't really deal with the thing that's there. Um, we, we do this kind of thing as well. It just seems a little bit odd for them because it's, uh, it's so blatant in terms of what they do. It's one thing to trust God when you can fight and win, like against Goliath. It's another thing to trust the Lord when you're not allowed to fight back. And here, David's not allowed to fight back against Saul. Um, and, and what we're going to see in this is that when you can't fix your circumstances, you still have to trust the Lord. 
So why is it David can't fight back? See, one of the things you see in the Bible and in, in the Old Testament law is uh, there, there's a passage there where it says that you cannot raise the hand against God's anointed. And what we're gonna see with David is this incredible humility that is going to allow him to submit to unjust attacks and to an unfair boss. And he's gonna submit to him and he's gonna walk in through that because he knows that God God has put this guy in place and I am not to take him down. It's not mine to raise my hand against the Lord's anointed. And so he's still faithful, Um, but it's it's gonna be hard for him to do. Eventually, a little bit later, we're gonna see David's actually gonna flee. He's gonna just run out of the house. He's gonna get away, from, get away from Saul and leave. Let me ask you this, of what you know about David, how hard do you think it was for him just to run away? I mean, this is not a guy that's ever run away from anything. This is a guy that's chased bears down. This is a guy that walked out and faced giants when no one else would. This is a guy that's led men of war and he's led troops of thousands. And he's, everything in his nature, in his makeup is, if someone attacks, I'm gonna counterattack. And yet he's gonna run away because he's gonna be faithful to do what the Lord calls him to do. This is an important lesson for us to learn, isn't it? And how hard is it for you to do something right when it doesn't feel right? How hard is it to do what you know God says to do when your flesh wants to do something different? And it's a hard place to be. How hard is it when your spouse hurls a comment at you not to hurl a spear back, but to sit on it? And it's difficult. David was humble in the way in which he operated in the middle of this scenario. You think it's important for a future leader to learn to do what's right when he doesn't feel like it? Think it's important for a future king to learn to trust God's word and trust the Lord even when it goes against what he feels like he ought to do and wants to do? Yeah, you're gonna have to learn to override that thing all the time. It's an important thing. Here's an interesting thing for you. Let me ask you this. Are you surprised Saul missed? Like, you want to understand that that God is at work in this passage? Let me just tell you this. Saul, an experienced warrior, a man of large size, carrying a spear in his own house, can't hit a musician playing a harp at close range. Twice. Right? I mean, like, that can't be that hard. I mean, the dude's playing a harp in the room right there, and you've got a spear, and you miss him twice? Like, that's not a normal thing. But David... This teenage boy steps out on a battlefield and hurls a single rock and finds the one little gap in, a, in the armor of a giant and drops the dude dead. That's God's sovereignty. See, when God was working with David, he pinpointed something that he should not have been able to hit. Saul missed twice something he should have easily hit. And so you see this kind of thing that's unpacking. As much as we, want, as we see Saul's attempts to destroy David, what we also see is God's ability to bring David protection and success. God's watching out, God's at work, God's doing something here. The next thing we're gonna see is that Saul's gonna become a little more uh, kind of manipulative in the way he goes about trying to take David out. He's gonna be a little more subtle and he's beginning to talk about David marrying some of his daughters, David uh, going, giving him more responsibility at war. But it's clear as you kind of unpack the passage that he's trying to put David in harm's way in hopes that naturally things will take care of themselves. And so uh, let's look at the next little section here, starting in verse 17. It says, then Saul said to David, here's my elder daughter, Merab, and I will give her to you for a wife. Only be valiant for me and fight the Lord's battles. He's actually insinuating here that David hasn't really earned his stripes. I promised you my daughter, but hey, why don't you just be valiant, go out and do my thing, or go out and fight all my battles for me, and maybe, maybe you'll earn your stripes and, and have a right to this. And Saul thought, 
Uh, but really what Saul was thinking behind the scenes was, let not my hand be against him, but let the hand of the Philistines be against him. And David said to Saul, who am I and who are my relatives and my father's clan in Israel that I should be a son-in-law to the king? But at the time when, uh, but at the time when Merab, Saul's daughter, should have been given to David, she was given to Adriel, the Maholathite, uh, for a wife. Now Saul's daughter, Michal, loved David. And they told Saul, and this thing pleased him. Saul thought, let me give her to him, that she may be a snare for him, and that the hand of the Philistines may be against him. Therefore Saul said to David a second time, you shall now be my son-in-law. And David, Saul commanded his servants and said, speak to David in private and say, behold, the king has delight in you and all his servants love you. Now then, become the king's son-in-law. And Saul's servants spoke these words in the ears of David. And David says, does it seem to you a little thing to become the king's son-in-law since I am a poor man and have no reputation? And the Saul, servants of Saul told him, thus uh, thus and so did David speak. And Saul said, thus you'll say then to David, the king desires no bride price except for a hundred foreskins of the Philistines, that he may be avenged of the king's enemies. Now Saul thought to make David fall at the hand of the Philistines. And when the servants told David these words, it pleased David well to be the king's son-in-law. Before the time had expired, David arose and went along with his men and killed 200 of the Philistines. And David brought their foreskins, which were given in full number to the king that he might become the king's son-in-law. And Saul gave him his daughter Michal for a wife. But when Saul saw and knew that the Lord was with David and that Michal, Saul's daughter, loved him, Saul was even more afraid of David. And Saul was David's enemy continually. Then the commanders of the Philistines came out to battle. And as often as they came out, David had more success than all the servants of Saul, so that his name was highly esteemed. Now this whole passage is kind of funky for us, right? Like we're not quite sure what to do, how to make sense of this whole thing. It just seems like a bit of an odd, an, an odd thing. Uh, marriage can be tough enough on its own, um, but this seems a little bit ridiculous, right? I mean, like some of you think you have in-law problems, but I'm, I'm gonna guess they're not like this, right? Uh, probably not quite this rough, but this whole thing seems pretty strange. So let me unpack it a little bit. In ancient Israel, you had... Uh, kind of this scenario of this honor-shame culture and this kind of different culture that happened there. And one of the things they would do is they would actually pay a bride price, a dowry. They would pay a price to the bride's family in order to kind of earn the right to get to marry that bride. And so a lot of that was built on the status of the family, the stature of the family within the community at large, but also just the wealth that they had and what they were able to do. And so it created kind of this informal caste system of kind of haves and have-nots. And what David says in the scenario, especially with the, the first daughter is, well, I'm not really of a noble family. I don't really think I belong in the royal line. Uh, David uh, had some, actually had some mixed race and mixed in his bloodlines. And so in, if you look back in his family tree, there were some mixed race things that had gone on there. And so that probably, he felt like, man, maybe that puts me on the outside. I don't really measure up. I'm not really kind of pure blood um, in line for the throne. He also said, I'm a, I come from a poor family. Like I've got no way to pay for this. Now, here's what's interesting. Uh, when David killed Goliath, what was it the king had promised? Riches. It was the first thing he promised, but it's clear Saul had reneged on that and had not followed through. And so now you've got this scenario. David comes and says, well, I'm a poor man. So uh, Merab's given to another man in, in marriage. So then Saul decides on a different approach. And instead of paying a cash, he decides, you know what? Why don't you pay me in some kind of physical feat? Why don't you go out and kill a bunch of my enemies 
And, uh, and, and because of this physical feat that you've done, you can let that be the payment for the bride and I'll accept that. And David thinks that's a good idea. Now, uh, any of you guys given your daughter away in marriage? Yeah, any of you try this sort of thing? Like, I hope not. That would just be weird, right? I mean, like your daughter comes and says, hey, I'm in love with this guy. And you go, ah, let me tell you what we're gonna do. 100 foreskins of the enemy of our country. Like that, that's just not, I mean, it's there, right? Like, don't you love how real the Bible is? Uh, it, you know, you guys probably, many of you probably know the Babylon Bee. Uh, before there was a Babylon Bee, there was another magazine called the Wittenberg Door. And it was this kind of Christian comedy magazine. And in that magazine, I will never forget seeing uh, the, this one kind of spoof that they did. And uh, it was titled Precious Moments Dolls You'll Never See. Uh, do you know what Precious Moments Dolls are? Uh, I think I've got a picture of some back here and they were these really kitschy, saccharine, sweet, Christian-y thingies that they would make and they'd sell in Christian bookstores and they would take these scenes out of the Bible and they'd create this like saccharine, sweet little image. I think we've got another one there. And they would take these little scenes out of the Bible and it's like Jesus welcomes the little children and you know, these wonderful moments and uh, the magazine took these moments out of the Bible that were very much not like those and said, hey, what would it look like if we created precious moments for this? And said, one of the ones you're never gonna see is David in 200 foreskins. Like you're never gonna see that precious moments doll, right? This is not one of the kinder, gentler verses of the Bible, um, but it's in there. Like it's, it's right here. And I don't know what the delivery mechanism was for that. And I'm not sure exactly what that looked like when David brought it home. But I know that Saul was like, okay, you can have her. You know, which, you know, may tell you something about the prize he was getting. Um, but Saul really, what he had thought was, surely if this guy goes off and has to kill a hundred of my enemies, like surely one of them is just gonna accidentally kill him. Like surely he'll be taken out at some point. Here's what's, uh, what's fascinating when you think about this. Saul eventually does give David his daughter's hand in marriage. And so David gets married and you get down to verse 28. And it says, when Saul saw, he knew that the Lord was with David and that his daughter loved him. And Saul was even more afraid and he became his enemy continually. But the commanders of the Philistines came out to battle. Well, you think, like what are the Philistines gonna think when this guy has done this to their 200 of their cohorts? And this is what gets back to them. They're like, okay, I guess we better fight. Like anyone want any part of that? No, like, okay, let's go to war. And so the Philistines came out and as often as they came out, David had more success than all the servants of Saul and he gained even more respect. Friends, in everything we've seen in this whole passage, who's protecting David? God's hands clearly upon David. It's clear that God's favors with David. In fact, chapter 18 says three different times the Lord was with him. The Lord was by his side. That's 10% of the verses in this chapter reference the Lord being right there with David in the middle of all the bad things that are going on. Verse 12, Saul was afraid of David because the Lord was with him. Verse 14, David had success in all his undertakings for the Lord was with him. Verse 28, Saul saw and knew that the Lord was with David. Just, you see this theme that shows up through this whole passage that as everything seems to be unraveling in his life, as he's doing everything right and everything bad is happening, the Lord's right there in the middle of it, isn't he? Never leaves him, but is always with him. And yet what we're gonna see as we get through chapters 19, 20, 21, and so on, is that David is just entering this kind of crucible of training where he is just gonna be weaned, where he's gonna be sifted, where everything he thought he could count on in life just slowly is taken away from him. And so you, we're gonna literally watch, and David's gonna be separated from his friend, Jonathan. 
He's gonna be separated from his mentor, uh, Samuel. He's gonna be separated from his wife, Michal. He's gonna be separated from the king's court, separated from the army, separated from his leadership responsibility, separated, separated from his home, separated from his nation, even separated from his self-respect. You're gonna just see these things one by one be removed from David's life and yet David's still gonna flourish. And how is it that your emotional stability and support and, and all those that you count on relationally can be taken away and yet you can thrive. See, there's a place where we come to in life where we realize that, all we, that, that really we have to trust God alone. That, that all the other supports, all the other things that we've learned to kind of lean on in life have been removed, but God is still there by our side. Friends, that's the key to making sense of the hard times in life is just realizing that the Lord's by your side. So let me ask you this, is the Lord by your side? Like, do you know that the Lord's by your side? Can you trust him? Are you confident as David was? Because sometimes that may be all you have. And when life works that way, it's excruciating. It's difficult. It's really hard. And yet God's at work in the middle of it. And yet God's shaping you and he's molding you. Here's what I want you to know when you're in those times. Yes, it can be hard. Yes, it can be difficult. But it's never outside of God's hands. Hard times are never meaningless or arbitrary. Hard times are, are never untethered from the sovereign will of God. And you're always under God's sovereign grace and his work and in, in his will in the world. But if you ever brought to a place where God's really all that you can trust, then it can be the most difficult season, but it can also be the most rewarding. There can also be freedom that's found there when you realize that God can be trusted even when everything else has been taken away. You know what scares us? What scares us is when we think that God isn't there or that God isn't aware or that God doesn't care about the things that are going on in your life. That's what scares us. What gives us comfort is knowing that God, that God is with us in the midst of it all. Sometimes the way that we grow is by God just pulling away all the props in our life. As he peels them away, we learn and it deepens our faith and our trust in him. Uh, Jenny Allen posted this, kind of the timing of this was ironic, but yesterday I saw this. She said, you know, it's not punishment to take a pacifier away from a four-year-old. It's just time to grow up and get a backpack instead. You know, there's a spiritual growth that happens. And sometimes God's taken something away to give you something else. Sometimes God's taken something away so that you learn to trust him so that you can grow up and deepen your faith. He's not being mean. He's not simply trying to punish you. He's actually trying to shape you and mold you and train you and build you up. But life is a way of stripping you of everything that props up your life and teaching you to trust the Lord and his word. And William Blakely said it this way. He said of David, it pleased God in infinite love to make David pass through a long period of hard discipline and salutary training for the office to which he was to be raised. So God was, God was at work. God was training. God was allowing these things to happen because they were shaping a man and preparing him for what was, what was ahead. And part of growing up for us is learning to walk by faith and not by sight when things don't seem to make sense to our eyes and learning to trust the Lord and trust his word and trust the goodness of it, even in the midst of all those things that we have. Um, you know, it's interesting for me, I, I was trying to think of where I've learned some of this in my own life. And um, can you think of times in your life where you've looked back and just thought you can see those seasons where you just felt like all those supports in your life are being pulled away? And it's like, man, I'm gonna have to just hold tightly to the Lord. Like I was thinking of one of those moments in my own life and 
remember telling Nan, and this was uh, working uh, elsewhere at another time, another place, but we were telling Nan that if I do what I think is right in this situation, I don't think I'll have a job in a month. And I think that means we're going to lose $100,000 to $150,000 because we were in a, it was in a down market. Our house was way undervalued. We were never going to be able to sell it for what it was. And I just thought, if, if, I, if I take a stand based on conscience, if I do what I think is right, as I was being pressured to do something that I didn't think was biblical, something I didn't think was, was, was what we were called to do, um, I had to take a stand. And, and as I told Nan that, do you remember this? And she remember her response was, no, nah, I don't think that'll happen. Um, she wouldn't say that today. She'd say, oh, it was actually more than that. Um, and it did end up in something that we, I had to take a stand, and when I did, um, there was a difficult season that came out of that. I ended up out of work. Um, want to know how much severance I received in that moment? Zero dollars. You know, four kids, a house we couldn't sell, zero dollars to live on, and I had to trust the Lord. And I had to trust that the Lord was going to come through. And you know what? You know where the Lord was? He was right here. He's right by my side. And looking back at that, I know. And I can see God's hand, and I see the way he worked, and I see the way he shaped us, and I see the way he molded us, and I see even some of the freedom he gave us in some of the worries of today. Because we look back and said, you know what, when all the supports were gone, we had to learn to trust him, and the Lord was by our side in it all. And friends, the Lord will be by your side too. But there will be seasons when it feels like, man, everything's been pulled away. All the supports, all the stuff, I'm being sifted. And what God's doing, he's not just punishing you, he's shaping you. And he's teaching you that you can trust him. And there's freedom and goodness in that, even though it's hard. Um, let me end with this. There's a, a poem in a book called Spiritual Leadership that's a classic that speaks to this. And um, J. Oswald Sanders' book, Spiritual Leadership, and this is a poem that he includes there. And it says, when God wants to drill a man and thrill a man and skill a man, when God wants to mold a man to play the noblest part, when he yearns with all his heart to create so great and bold a man that all the world shall be amazed, watch his methods, watch his ways, how he ruthlessly perfects, whom he royally elects, how he hammers him and hurts him and with mighty blows converts him into trial shapes of clay, which only God understands. While his tortured heart is crying and he lifts beseeching hands, how he bends but never breaks when his good he undertakes. How he uses whom he chooses in which every purpose fuses him. By every act induces him to try his splendor out. God knows what's he, what he's about. Friends, God knows what he's doing. How big's your God? Can you trust him when it seems like everything's falling apart? What you need to know is the Lord's by your side. He's there with you. He's there in it all. And ultimately, the one that we look to is a man named Jesus who walked with the Lord in obedience, who was faithful, even to the point of death, faithful on the cross, that when every support in his life left, that when the disciples left and Peter left and Peter denied him and all the things just began to peel away, that Jesus stayed faithful and Jesus and followed through, and Jesus was obedient, and he trusted the Lord in it all. And because of that, we have life. So let me pray for us. Heavenly Father, I pray that we would trust you as your son did, that Father, even in his hardship, he stayed true. Even in places where it seemed as though he was abandoned, 
Father, he was obedient. Father, even in places where times were difficult, he did not run, but he stayed the course. Father, and because of him, we've been made new. Because of him, we are learning to be true to you as well. Father, we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.